St. John describes Jesus' miracles as signs, and he selects just seven of them for his gospel while acknowledging that there are many more. This one, our gospel reading this morning, the wedding at Cana of Galilee and the turning of water into wine, is the first of the signs in the gospel. It's a great story, but we often miss its significance because it's separated from chapter one and what's gone immediately before it. The chapter break separates it off. St. John begins on the third day. Now, if we go back to chapter one, we'll see that St. John is describing a series of days and a series of events on them. Day one is when the Pharisees go to John the Baptist and ask whether he is the Messiah. Day two is when St. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Day three is the calling of the first disciples, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, and later on that day, Peter himself. The fourth day is the calling of Philip and of Nathanael. The fourth day ends with Jesus saying to Nathanael that he will see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's how chapter 1 finishes, with the promise of heaven being opened so what happens next? How do we see heaven opened? Well, I don't know how the disciples would have felt, but we feel perhaps a bit of a sense of anticlimax, because what Jesus does after telling them they will see angels is taking them to meet his mother. And he takes them to meet his mother at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, where Nathaniel, incidentally, who Jesus had made the promise to, actually comes from. In describing these series of days, St. John uses the phrase, on the next day, on the next day, on the next day. But when he describes the wedding at Cana of Galilee, he says, on the third day. That is the third day after the last day mentioned, which is the fourth day. In other words, this is the sixth day. This reference to the third day and the fact it takes place on the sixth day is meant to ring bells. Now, it doesn't ring bells for us because we don't know the Old Testament as well as Jesus' disciples would have done. Remember, they are expecting the Messiah. They're expecting the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote. They were steeped in the Scriptures. And these two references are important references. Why so? Well, in the Old Testament, God describes His people Israel as His bride, as His wife. Now, it's often said about St. John's Gospel that it doesn't contain parables in the way the other three Gospels do. So, for example, we don't get the parable of the sower, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the, of the good Samaritan. But it's only partially true to say that St. John's Gospel doesn't contain parables, because for St. John, the signs, the miracles of Jesus, the seven miracles he describes, 
are meant to be enacted parables. And the clue to understanding these enacted parables are these signals that he gives to what is written in the Old Testament. Now, are any of you fans of Sherlock Holmes? Do we have any Sherlock Holmes fans here? One or two, one or two. Do you know the story of Silver Blaze? The story of Silver Blaze contains a very famous passage where the Scotland Yard detective, Gregory, says to Sherlock Holmes, are there any other pointers that you can give me? And Sherlock Holmes says, I would direct you to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And Gregory, the detective, says, but the dog didn't do anything in the nighttime. And Sherlock Holmes replies, that is the curious incident. The dog that didn't bark in the nighttime, nothing happened. Well, have you noticed something strange about the wedding of Cana of Galilee? What isn't mentioned, what doesn't happen? Well, there's no wedding, and in fact, there's no bride or groom. At least, the groom makes a appearance at the end when the master of ceremony thinks he's the one that's provided all the wine, which of course he isn't. No mention of a bride at a wedding. Well, I don't know how many weddings you've been to, but all the weddings I go to, the bride is the center of attention. But no mention of the bride. And that's because we're meant to pick up on this reference in the Old Testament of how Israel is the bride. In the prophet Isaiah, which the disciples would have known and studied, the prophet Isaiah says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Well, if God is married to his people, when did that marriage take place? Well, as it happens, the book of Exodus tells us, after the people of Israel leave Egypt and escape from slavery, to the Egyptians in Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai. And they're told at Mount Sinai that on the third day, God will enter a covenant with them. On the third day, they will meet their God. And the people reply at that moment, whatever the Lord God tells us to do, we will do it. Remember those words. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so God says to them, prepare for the third day, because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. The problem is, although God married his people at Sinai, although he loved them as a bride, as a husband would love the bride he was marrying. Israel was unfaithful and committed spiritual adultery, and the marriage is broken. But in the book of Hosea, God makes this promise to Israel, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife forever. Now, here's the thing. What is going to be the sign 
when God takes Israel as his wife forever. Does anybody know? The sign is going to be the mountains will run with wine. The mountains will drip with wine. There will be an abundance of wine. When God takes his people back to himself, forgives them and restores them and remarries them, renews the covenant with them, there will be wine. None of this symbolism would have been lost on the disciples. Jesus is saying in this enacted miracle, this enacted parable, that what the prophets promised is now happening, and it's happening in him. And here's a lovely touch. Whose job was it to provide wine at a wedding in the first century? It was the job of the bridegroom. That's why the master of ceremonies speaks to the groom and compliments him on the wine. But Jesus has taken over the role of the bridegroom. All the promises of God in the Old Testament are coming to fulfillment. Jesus is revealing who he is. God is coming down on his people in the way he did at Sinai. Now, you're probably thinking, Ross, you really are losing it uh, this morning. Uh, you're totally totally going off on one, except that in John chapter 3, St. John the Baptist specifically identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. Okay, all very interesting, but what's it got to do with us? Well, simply this. We're used to talking about the church using a variety of images. In a moment or two, we will talk about how we are the body of Christ. We describe ourselves as the family of God and each other as brothers and sisters. One of the New Testament images we don't often use to describe ourselves as the church is that of us as the bride of Christ. And yet St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 does that in precise and exact terms. And here in our second reading this morning, St. John talks about how at the end, when Jesus returns, we will sit down with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The image of the bride of Christ and us as Christ's bride is one, I think, that can help us correct a lot of errors which have kept into the church because there is a real disconnect between the images we use to describe the church and the reality. By using the image of the bride of Christ, by rediscovering its meaning, we will discover that at the heart of who we are as a church lies relationship. Too much of our thinking about the church relies on images and models drawn from business, from finance, and from the world of marketing and commerce. We focus on our building, our money, and our organization. And the tragedy is, if we were to remove God from the picture, the church could just continue. 
very little in lots of ways would change. We would continue perhaps as a spiritual charity or NGO. Of course we need to organize as the people of God, but we quickly move from the need to organize to becoming an organization no different in many ways to many others. The image of the Bride of Christ speaks to us about our identity. We exist for Christ, and we have no meaning as a church apart from our relationship with Him, a relationship based on love. His love for us and our love for Him. Lose this and we lose our reason for existing. You perhaps have come across couples who will say things like, if you push them, we stay together for the kids. The love went long ago, but we're staying together for the kids. They need that stability. We don't feel the same for each other, but we still feel an obligation, an obligation to keep going. Too often in the church, it's a bit like that. In the book of Revelation, St. John talks about one church that lost its first love, and Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. In our worship, we look back to the Last Supper. In a moment or two, we will share communion together as we think about how Christ instituted this service on the night that he was betrayed. But our Eucharist, our communion, doesn't just look back, it looks forward. It looks forward to when we will be together at the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we, the Bride of Christ, are united with Him, who is our Lord and our Lover. Our communion, our Eucharist, our meeting together every Sunday is meant to be an anticipation of this marriage supper of the Lamb. What we are as a church should remind us of what should be true of our relationship as individuals with Christ. For our relationship is to be at the heart of our identity as people and children of God. The language St. John will go on to use to describe the believer's relationship with Christ is intense and it is intimate. St. John will tell us that Christ will not only dwell with us, but in us. And until we get that relationship right, nothing else matters. But once we get it right, everything else flows from it. For those in love seek to please the beloved, not out of duty, but out of joy, out of love for that other person. And this is how we are to understand Jesus' words. If you love me, keep my commandments. Not keep them as a slave keeps them, but keep them out of love to please the one we love. 
as our Lord's mother says to us, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And here's the amazing thing. When we do what Jesus tells us to do, water becomes wine. Not a little, but a lot. Mountains flow with it, drip with it. Miracles happen when we love Jesus. Obeying Jesus is a transformative experience, and it happens not simply in church, but in the everyday events and circumstances of our daily lives. It happens at weddings, and it happens with water. So if we want to see heaven opened this morning, if we want to see the Son of God reveal His glory, we need to do what the Blessed Virgin Mary tells us to do, to listen to Him and to obey Him. Amen.